Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. It's a very popular talk, which is very nice, and it's a combination of the Griffith Asia Institute seminar and the Southeast Asia group. So welcome everyone from the Southeast Asia group. But let's um, start with our speaker for today, Richard Bitzinger, who is a um, senior fellow at RSIS in Singapore and who has published widely on anything to do with the arms industry or the transformation and modernization of militaries in the entire Asia-Pacific region, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I try. <laughs> one of the very few people who is very knowledgeable on the subject, so we are very happy and mm-hmm. glad that you're actually here today. So please. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate very much uh, the opportunity to come. This is actually... A lot of firsts. It's obviously the first time to Brisbane for me, so it makes it obviously the first time to Griffith. And I never have a bad time when I come to Australia, so thank you all. What I hope to be able to do and, and, and not give you the proverbial death by briefing is to talk a little bit about something that it's almost kind of become a, a sideline industry for me, which is uh, this issue of, um, I mean, in this case I say I'm looking mostly at naval modernization, but I have done a lot of stuff on on overall military modernization, a lot in Southeast Asia because, frankly, that's where I'm located, and so that's where the local interests are, but also uh, uh, throughout the Asia-Pacific, this has kind of become my my meat. And um, a question that I'm, I'm still asked after years and years and years is, is the process of rearming of recapitalization of local militaries, particularly in Southeast Asia and East Asia, which also, like I say, includes China, does this somehow constitute an arms race? And, of course, the question then is, well, what do we mean by an arms race? Because they have certain connotations that they bring up. Just to sort of tell you what I'm going to say here, basically three parts, you know, what do I see as actually the, the drivers and enablers of modernization, uh, particularly what kind of military equipment do we see these uh, regional militaries buying, and then what's the impact of this arming, and in particular is this arming somehow destabilizing? And in particular, is it an arms race? And by which I mean, of course, then we have to define what we mean by an arms race. Well, the way I've seen it, I see basically um, four really most powerful drivers that the factors that are sort of promoting, pushing uh, military modernization, naval modernization in this case, and two enablers. And I'm going to go through each one of them here individually. I mean, the interesting thing about Southeast Asia is even though um, all the uh, countries in the region belong to ASEAN, and ASEAN is, of course, a, uh, you know, I suppose the most facetious way to refer to it is a kumbaya type of uh, organization which uh, promotes regional cooperation, peaceful development, non-interference. Everybody's basically, uh, you know, good friends with each other. Uh, there are some some residual under the surface types of animosities and even some territorial claims that are conflicting with each other, and these do affect 
relationships at a very kind of subcutaneous level in a way. I mean, there, there are still unresolved territorial claims, particularly in the Spratleys and some of these small island areas. Uh, also, uh, between Thailand and Malaysia, there are some, some along the border there, there's some, you know, uh, kind of uh, not really going to war, but, but definitely unresolved uh, border issues. In particular, what we have seen in the last 10, 15 years is the emergence of overlapping and, and very strongly made claims over exclusive economic zones, EEZs, particularly in the South China Sea, because of either known or estimated uh, oil and gas deposits that may or may not exist in large num- parts of these EEZs, and above all, just currently, is just simply conflicts over fisheries. The South China Sea is a major fishing breadbasket, and of course there's a lot of concern about not only overfishing but poaching. And so you see a, a huge overlap. And then finally, just certain intra-ASEAN contentions, I don't want to say animosities, but there's a certain historical uh, kind of um, ill feelings or concerns or suspicions. Singapore versus Malaysia, Myanmar versus Thailand, Thailand versus Cambodia. And, you know, these are the kinds of issues that some people think could influence arms acquisition. Just to give you an idea of the kinds of uh, overlapping claims in the South China Sea, uh, it's not really, let me see if I can point this out a little better. Um, First time I ever downloaded a map like this, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, because you've got uh, the Philippines, which claimed this. This is Brunei. Uh, this is uh, Vietnam's. Uh, Malaysia has this. And of course, what a lot of us may know is the so-called nine-dash line, which is the Chinese claim. And so basically, there's hardly a part of the South China Sea that doesn't have at least two claimants over the territory. As I point out, there's this one little part right here which almost everybody seems to claim, and if there was ever anything important found there, God help us all. (laughs) So you get this idea of this huge patchwork quilt of competing claims. And in some cases, there are active oil and gas fields, but a lot of the area is just simply one in which people expect that there might be something. So it's obviously become a growing stake. In this regards, therefore, a lot of regional militaries uh, are shifting away from their traditional roles and missions, which tended to be very internally directed. Uh, A lot of them sort of uh, geared towards uh, counterinsurgencies within their own territories or kind of territorial uh, defense, mostly along land borders are in some cases simply that the militaries existed to oppress their own people and to enforce military dictatorships. But this has been changing and in fact you're finding growing kind of external requirements. In particular this requirement to protect sea lanes of communications or SLOCs. The South China Sea and the region around Southeast Asia is very critical to global trade. And in fact, you could argue that the, this region is actually constitutes like the world's largest type of canal. I mean, certainly the amount of traffic that passes through the Southeast Asian waterways is much bigger than ever goes through the Panama or the Suez Canal. So it's a very important slock. 
At the same time, a lot of regional militaries finding increased requirements for things like peacekeeping operations, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, various stabilization missions such as we saw in like East Timor, uh, particularly after the 2004 uh, tsunami that hit Indonesia and Thailand, there's this feeling that militaries have very important HADR missions that they should be uh, taking on. And then finally, just the idea of the contributing to you know, good order at sea, protecting the global commons, fighting terrorism, fighting piracy, fighting transnational crime that may take place in their waterways. And there's a certain... You know, it's it's not just altruistic. There's a certain self-serving nature to it because the South China, the Southeast Asian nations know that if they can't guarantee good order at sea in their regional waters, other countries like the United States or China or Japan will do it for them, and they they're trying to avoid that situation. Obviously, one of the things that's become a real situation in the last, I'd say particularly in the last five years, is the growing Chinese presence in the South, in Southeast Asia, particularly the South China Sea, and particularly an increasingly more assertive or even aggressive China in this area. Now, China, of course, has considerable economic interests that involve Southeast Asia, and particularly it's a very important uh, waterway for them, and as it puts here, you know, 80% of their oil imports come through these Southeast Asian slocks. And, and in a sense, too, what they also see is that their claims over the uh, South China Sea have become increasingly intransigent. Recently, they have announced things like they have sovereign control, that nine-dash line, which used to be put up as a so-called starting point for negotiations, has, in many conversations that I've had, increasingly become an, an issue of intransigence. That is not just simply an, uh, you know, a goal. That is actually what our claim is. Now, that's not officially made, but it is becoming increasingly something that you find a lot of digging it of heels when it comes to that. And this issue, of course, that the South China Sea is now a core issue, a core interest for them. And that makes it a lot hard in order to try and deal with uh, the, the way that they approach uh, these types of uh, negotiations uh, over South China Sea sovereignty. And correspondingly, we've seen a pretty significant military buildup by the Chinese around Southeast Asia. We've seen the PLA Navy and its efforts to basically move from being what was largely a brown water, coastal-oriented type of navy to one that they would like. I'm not saying it is, but I think their goal is to become... Uh, a modern blue water navy, an open ocean navy capable of sustainable power uh, projection and expeditionary capabilities. And we've seen the, incre you know, the expansion or the creation of new bases in, South, uh, in Southeast Asia and particularly a buildup in the Spratly Islands. Now, sort of underwriting all this, of course, is a continuing increase in Chinese defense spending. If you go back to the uh, late 1990s, you see that uh, Chinese defense spending, even after taking inflation into account, has gone up on average around 10% a year. And the cumulative effect basically has been that defense spending has probably gone up at least fivefold. In 1997, they were spending roughly around $7 billion 
U.S. dollars. This year they're talking about close to 120 billion U.S. dollars, making them the second largest defense spender in the world, overtaking countries like Japan and the U.K. in recent years. The other side of this is the fact that their budget for equipment, which is about one-third of their overall budget, has similarly gone up. And again, it means that the Chinese simply have a lot more money that they can put into their military in order to modernize it. Now, what we've seen, of course, is uh, certain bases that they have, particularly on Hainan Island, where they've expanded their naval facilities there and adding some of their most re you know, up-to-date and modern equipment that they've had, in particular these new types of destroyers and some of some, uh, their best maritime strike aircraft. Uh, on this woody island, which is in the middle of the South China Sea, they've added a longer runway and... and have often uh, cycled some of their most advanced fighters to operate temporarily out of that area. Just to give you an idea, these are from Google Earth, uh, some of the expansion of facilities in particular. This is where they're keeping a lot of their most modern nuclear-powered submarines is on, on Hainan Island, and then you see some of these small islands that they have where they, you know, I always find this interesting the way they've, they've turned these uh, things into the um, the runways are actually bigger than the island these days. And, of course, you know, you put fuel depots there and everything, and it makes them very good forward operating bases. Um, the Spratly Island buildup is one of the more interesting ones, operating under the presumption that, ah, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Uh, something that, the, that the, the Chinese have been doing is when they lay claim to one of these uh, so-called Spratly Islands, which, as you can see in the lower left-hand corner, oftentimes are no more than rocky outlets that just barely op you know, pop above the surface. Generally what they've done is they've uh, assembled at first these very crude bases. Uh, they build a platform. They put a couple of uh, buildings there. They pluck a couple of poor slobs out of the PLA, give them six months' worth of rations and a big flag to fly if anybody comes by to basically assert sovereignty. Uh, then over the years, they've actually in, you know, expanded these bases, uh, basically poured a lot of concrete over them. So if you look at that right-hand side picture, uh, it's not the same one, but it's, it shows you what happens is after a while, the artificial manufactured structure totally obliterates the uh, the little um, islets that you see um, and they become uh, more and more uh, permanent in a way and this is something that they've done in many cases now I'm not saying they're the only ones who have done it too but they've certainly uh, been very good at establishing their footholds in the Spratleys um, the United States military has also sort of added a little extra fuel to the fire of what's going on in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, their, their so-called pivot uh, to back to Asia, which is really a pivot to Southeast Asia, the reload, because they are also sort of drawing down certain troop numbers out of South Korea and Japan. They've been, you know, trying to build up their forces in Guam as a corresponding measure. But in particular, what you're seeing is new basing and alliance arrangements that are really involved in this part of the world in Southeast Asia. The uh, U.S. Navy is going to be moving some new so-called 
LCS littoral combat ships to Singapore. They'll be uh, based there on a, on a cycling basis. And of course, as a lot of people here know, uh, U.S. Marines are going to be deployed to northern Australia, again, on a kind of a, uh, a rotational basis. And in general, just simply the effort of the United States military to uh, increase its oper- interoperability with uh, forces in Japan, Australia, Singapore, etc. So you see that you know this is an area where a lot of outside large powers are starting to become much more uh, kind of interested in what's going on, and that's raising a lot of the stakes. Now, when we turn to the responses, that is, what is the um, Southeast Asian countries doing. There's these two enablers that I think we have to keep in mind when we look at the last 15-odd years of arms procurement. And the first is, essentially, these countries have got a lot more money than they used to to be able to devote to arms acquisition. There has been a pretty steady and significant increase in defense spending uh, amongst most of the leading Southeast Asian countries. Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam. This is information I got out of the Stockholm uh, International Peace Research Institute, which gives you, an, and, and this is um, uh, constant dollars, so it's deflated. So you can get the idea of basically how defense budgets have gone up, and in some cases quite significantly. And I would dare say if you could get the data for 2013, you would probably find even more significant increases, particularly on the part of Indonesia, which I think has probably overtaken Singapore now as the largest single uh, defense, you know, biggest defense spender in Southeast Asia. Overall, during the last decade, military spending in Southeast Asia rose on average about 50% in real terms. So there just simply is more money available. And the other side is there's simply more product out there that is available for these countries to buy. And this is largely the, the byproduct of the end of the Cold War and how it affected the leading arms-producing countries, particularly in Western Europe, Russia, Israel, but even the United States. You had a lot of countries in, in the West and in Russia which uh, during the Cold War put considerable resources into building up their military-industrial complexes in order to basically you know, arm for the Cold War. And when that ended, therefore, a lot of countries were left with a lot of excess production capabilities. And they faced a lot of layoffs and consolidation and rationalization. Some of that was undertaken. But one of the things that became more important to these countries was the export market. And so what you found is more and more uh, certain arms-producing firms and certain arms-producing countries became overwhelmingly dependent upon arms exports. That is, their foreign markets. And so, for example, countries like Israel, which which basically export about 75% of their defense product. Or companies like BAE Systems or Talos, which also probably do much more than half of their business outside of their home countries of, say, the UK or France. Even in the United States, which has a large internal domestic defense market and still does, you find large companies like Lockheed or Boeing still pursuing arms exports 
because it's one of the things that keeps a lot of assembly lines open. Like, for example, the F-16, which hasn't been delivered to the U.S. Air Force in more than a decade, and production is entirely based on export orders. So when you have this overwhelming dependency on exports, basically what you create is a very competitive buyer's market. And most of these suppliers are really willing to deal, to wheel and deal, uh, when it comes to trying to gain orders. No order is too small. No interesting financing deal is ever going to be passed up. And how that affects Southeast Asia, I think, is very interesting. Not like I say, Southeast Asia is a small market overall, but it is a growing market. And as we can see, again, from CIPRI data, countries like Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia have really increased their arms imports over the last decade or so. Uh, in fact, Singapore actually has the dubious distinction of being the fifth largest in arms importer in recent years. So there, there's stuff that's available. The other thing that I think is interesting about Southeast Asia is that it's one of the few truly open arms markets. A lot of countries tend to have uh, preferred suppliers. You know, uh, Japan mostly buys from the United States. India mostly buys from Russia. But in Southeast Asia, it is very open. And you see this when you look at the types of procurements. The Russians have been able to sell fighter jets to a large number of countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam. Uh, Sweden has been able to sell fighter jets and submarines. You know, Britain and France have also had pretty good toeholds in there. And so it's a very competitive market. And the more competition, obviously, the more that uh, you can get uh, good deals when it comes to price or how you pay for these. And particularly when it comes to things like offsets and technology transfers, license production, buybacks, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these are incentives that basically help the buyer be able to uh, get this stuff. When we look at Southeast Asian naval modernization, what we've seen in this process of recapitalization of militaries over the last decade, decade and a half, is basically a move from small coastal-oriented militaries to them to militaries that at least have more potential for forward defense, for fire, force projection, uh, firepower, and even to a certain extent stealth. And let me just tackle a, a few of these on one at a time. Singapore, what you've seen is in the last, since basically around the late 90s is moving from basically small fast attack craft to acquiring frigates. These were from France. Getting submarines from the Swedes. Used, of course, but refurbished. The interesting thing, of course, is that before they bought these submarines, they didn't have a submarine force. So they basically created one out of whole cloth. Uh, they've also built some uh, force projection ships, LPDs, and in general the assumption is that they're trying to build a highly networked modern navy, one that can interoperate with each other and also jointly operate with uh, the air and ground forces of the Swedish military, or Singapore military, excuse me. To a certain extent, not to be outdone, the Malaysians have also engaged in a certain amount of, of procurement in the last decade. They wanted to acquire a couple of dozen of these so-called uh, offshore patrol vessels, which are based on a German Corvette design. A uh, little side story to that, 
they were going to get up to 26 of these and have them low. Don't don't give the story away, Martin. Um, basically, it's it's a, it's a comedy of errors. Uh, there was you know the usual uh, unfortunate uh, corruption and cost overruns and mismanagement, and eventually it went from 26 to six. But you know, hope springs eternal, and at this point now they plan to acquire some what they call littoral combat ships. They certainly have the requirement to uh, build up their navy and their coast guard with additional uh, power projection ships. Uh, some frigates, but again, too, they had no submarines, and then in recent years they've actually taken delivery of two of the so-called Scorpion-class submarines, which are built by the uh, Franco-Spanish Consortium. The interesting thing to note about these is they, they can actually fire encapsulated Exocet, which is an anti-ship cruise missile, through the torpedo tubes, which is actually something other regional uh, submarine forces cannot do. So it gives them a little extra added oomph to their submarine force. Uh, Indonesia has bought some corvettes. Interestingly enough, these are actually outfitted with Chinese missiles, as well as uh, French Exocets, uh, showing that there is a growing Indonesian-Chinese military relation going on. At the same time, the Indonesians are getting very close to the South Koreans. They bought some of these uh, large uh, LPDs on the right-hand side. Uh, these are actually based on commercial hulls with a uh, military superstructure. And again, uh, like Singapore and Malaysia, they've tried very hard in recent years to uh, recapitalize their submarine force. Uh, this has been a rather interesting saga for them. A couple of years ago, it looked like they were going to buy some Russian subs. The Russians actually made some export credits available to the Indonesians to buy them. But the deal fell apart when the Indonesians said, can we use the export credits to build a submarine base? Which the Russians said no. And so they sort of floundered a little bit. And the latest now is they're going to get probably a, a combination of a few used submarines from the South Koreans, some German Type 209, which is a pretty good thing. Plus the South Koreans say they're going to come in and build a submarine construction facility. Now the big question, of course, uh, how many submarines will they end up building? Because if they only built one or two, it's a waste of money. Uh, so it's very likely that the Indonesians will try, if they can afford it, to actually acquire a considerable fleet of submarines. Just a few other countries. Vietnam, I think the most important thing, again, to note is about three, four years ago, they announced that they're going to buy six kilo-class submarines from the Russians. Again, acquiring a capability that they did not possess previously. The Thais operate the only aircraft carrier in the region. It's a, what we call a pocket carrier. It's pretty small. It was built by the Spanish. It came with some uh, Harrier jump jets, which are largely believed to be inoperable. So it's basically one of the world's biggest helicopter carriers. But it has been used sometimes in humanitarian assistance missions. Brunei is getting some offshore patrol vessels. And the interesting thing is the Philippines, which has historically been like the sick man of Southeast Asia when it's come to its military, has actually in the recent years really tried to make an effort to, to acquire some larger things. They've gotten some ex-U.S. Coast Guard cutters, which have become essentially their largest ships in their Navy, some offshore patrol vessels, some LPDs, you know, and, and even they have 
talked about submarines, although we're, uh, we're still waiting on that. Well, that kind of gives you the, uh, a really quick flavor. And certainly what you can say is there has been a significant expansion in both the, the quant- quality, but I think especially the quality of the types of weapon systems that are, that are coming into Southeast Asian navies. And if I had more time, I could say this is also being matched by similar acquisitions within air and ground forces, and particularly the acquisition of very modern fighter jets such as uh, Su-30s and F-16s, Gripen fighters from Sweden, etc., etc. Now, the question, like I say then, is all this constituting an arms race? And the reason why people generally ask is, you know, an arms race has, has in and of itself very negative connotations. You know, generally when you hear of arms race, you, you think of a process of arming which is somehow inherently irrational. It's a futile, if not a counterproductive effort, because it doesn't really create security, it only undermines it. But, you know, you have to go a little bit further as to how do you know you're in an arms race. And in this regards, uh, I actually put on my academic hat and I go to some of the theories about arms races that are laid out by people like Colin Gray or Grant Hammond. And I'm not going to run down the list. Uh, This is actually kind of a condensed version. But the point that often comes out with arms races is that countries see themselves in in an explicit antagonistic relationship with other nations. And their arming is specifically and openly made in response to what they see another country doing. And so I think that's very important things to note, and the fact that you have to come out and actually say that we are, we are in an arming process because we have concerns over this country or that country or this. And so when you do that, one of the things, that in particular as a subset of this, is I'm often asked, is there a submarine arms race? And again, just to reiterate, I mean, you have countries like Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, and maybe even Thailand, which either didn't have any submarines at all, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or had maybe one or two extremely old and obsolete. And when you see the acquisition of submarines, which have a considerable uh, capabilities and state stealthiness and, and you know can be used in a variety of means from intelligence to special forces insertion and things like that you know these this is something that people are very concerned about and the other concern of course is that we've only seen the beginning and that you'll see countries like Malaysia and Indonesia Thailand which will not only acquire but will continue to acquire more and more submarines and so you could have a lot of them bumping around each other in, in Southeast Asia. But the question is, is it really an arms race? And one of the th- criticisms that I have about people like Colin Gray and Grant Hammond is they, the, 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 it's almost overly defined. It's almost too constricted, their definitions of an arms race. And in fact, if you use their characteristics as a kind of a laundry list, you actually find in history very, very few instances of what they would call an arms race. I mean, obviously between the U.S. and USSR during the Cold War, there was an arms race, particularly a nuclear arms race. You might argue that there's an arms race maybe between China and Taiwan. Maybe not. You would expect that if Taiwan really saw itself in an arms race, that they would be buying a lot more stuff than they have. 
like I say, there's too much emphasis on inferring uh, adversarial intentions, misperceiving, discounting, etc. So in general, it's very hard for me to see an arms race per se. You don't see the openly adversarial relationships within ASEAN. Again, as I point out, the interesting thing about ASEAN is despite the fact that these countries certainly have good cause to maybe be suspicious of each other, they will never actually express these. They certainly do not ever base openly their defense strategies or defense policies on their concerns about uh, other ASEAN states. Singapore doesn't say we arm explicitly in order to defend ourselves against a Malaysian threat. They may nudge you in in the ribs and say, you know, we know what we're talking about here. But on the other hand, it's it doesn't fit the 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 criteria to say it's an arms race. The other side of the coin is a lot of countries in Southeast Asia aren't even players. If you look at Brunei, you look at Burma, you look at you know Cambodia, Laos, even the Philippines, they barely have defense spending of any real numbers, and their acquisition rates are extremely small and minor. So where does that leave us? Well, there's these two guys, Buzan and Herring, who have written about something they call the arms dynamic, or what some people call the arms competition, in which you still see countries maybe buying weapons in an action-reaction, a tit-for-tat cycle, depending on what their neighbors are doing. But it's not unlike an arms race trying to gain an edge, a military edge over your regional players, but rather trying to keep the, ba- the status quo as they see it balanced. In other words, it's trying to create stability rather than gain hegemony or superiority. So it's not surprising, therefore, that if... Uh, Singapore buys submarines, Malaysia maybe buys a couple too because they want to keep things balanced. Another example was Malaysia went out and bought some Polish tanks about 15 years or 10 years ago and suddenly Singapore, which for years had said, you know, Southeast Asia is a bad place to operate tanks because it's kind of squishy, has suddenly said, hey, there's a use for them after all. Now, is that an arms race or an arms dynamic? And, and I think it probably fits Buzan and Herring's uh, definition of an arms dynamic, especially when we look at the fact that these aren't particularly large numbers involved. The other side of the thing is that, you know, that's within Southeast Asia. The other side is, is China perhaps driving this? And I think it's really still hard to say at this point. Again, No country in Southeast Asia, except maybe Vietnam and the Philippines, has really explicitly labeled their acquisition process as in response to what they see as as growing Chinese presence and, dare I even say, aggression in the South China Sea. Most countries still don't use that criteria. However, it is possible that this will become a more and more conscious and, and overt rationale for arming, particularly I think if we look at the types of weapon systems and platforms that might be acquired over the next decade, more submarines and maybe more uh, large surface combatants. There are, of course, other reasons why countries are buying weapons. Again, going back to the regional political military balancing, uh, going, you know, other issues such as pride and prestige. There's a lot of countries, particularly in the region, uh, which buy weapon systems because 
that's what you do if you're a military, you know. And you, uh, you, you know, if you're in the air, if you're the head of the air force, you want a couple of nice new F-16s that you can fly over on National Day celebrations, you know, what we call hangar queens, or you have some nice submarines that look very good and brochures and on websites and stuff like that. And frankly, to sort of, you know, not to make too big of a deal about it, but uh, the issue of corruption is something that cannot be discounted either. In a lot of countries, a lot of arms acquisitions are not made because of rational decisions that these are militarily useful, but because certain amounts of monies have exchanged under the table that basically uh, lead to the decision to acquire these weapon systems. And so we have a lot of other rationales that are perhaps driving the acquisition process. Again, like I say, I see more of an arms competition in Southeast Asia. And, and, and by extension, I think, for example, you could probably see an arms competition within, say, the South Korean and Japanese arms acquisition process. Not on the part of the Japanese, but certainly I'd say the South Koreans often buy weapons with an idea of what it is the Japanese are getting and how do we match that. That doesn't mean that the Koreans see themselves in an adversarial relationship with the, China, with the Japanese, but, you know, it factors in. So then the question is this, is, is this process of military and particularly naval modernization potentially destabilizing? If it's not an arms race, what is it? If it's arms competition, is it still something that we should perhaps be concerned about? Uh, and I think in two cases, that's, I would argue yes. And hopefully not because this is my job and I have to constantly keep reaffirming my value to the world. Um, in the first place, the process of modernization has resulted in the introduction of new military capabilities into regional militaries. Okay? If you look at particularly the navies and how they have progressed over the last 15 years from basically small coastal oriented defense forces to ones that are more capable of projecting power of operating further away from their shores, of having more firepower through things like anti-ship cruise missiles or better guns, the introduction of stealth in the area of submarines, or even in some cases uh, warships. I didn't mention that those Lafayette frigates that the Singaporeans acquired are considered to be a stealthy uh, frigate. Uh, what this does is this introduces new capabilities into the regional military security calculus and therefore can complement or complicate it. What this also leads to is perhaps increased arms competitions, or at least as part of this, and this can have unintended consequences, of course. I mean, one of the problems with, with the arms dynamic, as, as even Buzan and Herring points out, is that it can have the unintended consequence of actually undermining the very security that your arming is seeking to, to enhance. You know, the so-called spiral, spiral dilemma, uh, or the, the, sorry, the security dilemma. Uh, that Jervis has talked about, and the spiral effect. That is, you know, uh, tit-for-tat arming actually can create suspicions and uncertainties. And therefore, that plus 
this what a friend of mine has called modernization plus, means that if there is conflict in the South China Sea, for example, it's most likely going to be much more high-tech than it would have been a few years ago. In other words, there's going to be more lethal and potentially more devastating in its effect. To try and end on an up note, I always say, is, well, you could also say that these new pieces of equipment, if used correctly, could actually become uh, stabilizers. Uh, certainly, they give countries the, you know, the capabilities for deterrence, for contributing to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief and other types of contingencies. And certainly, from the standpoint of the U.S. military, it provides opportunities for improved interoperability. So I'm just going to leave it with that. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.